But welcome again, whether you are here with us in person, whether you're here online, welcome to City Life one more time. And uh, if you're a note taker like I am, when, when somebody's preaching, I've always got my notes out, and, and you're taking notes, you can put it at the top, simply lost the plot. Lost the plot. And if you got your Bible, we're going to be in John 5 in just a moment. You can turn there, you can swipe there. But uh, as a preface to this sermon, uh, this sermon is also kind of a preface to the series that's coming in a couple weeks. Fred's talked about it. We're going to be in a series called The Story talking about how the Bible tells a story, and each one of us has a part to play, working through the story of Scripture and the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. You could consider this a preface. You could consider this an appetizer, because I want to look at this idea that the Bible tells a story, and we have a part to play. But to get the conversation started tonight, how many of y'all remember these books? Choose Your Own Adventure books. Yeah, come on. Any 80s or 90s? I had somebody already today, younger, you know, fresh out of RCA, he's like, what is that? <laughs> and I was like, hey, you probably don't know about this. This was an uh, 80s and 90s baby thing, these choose-your-own-adventure books, and uh, they were a staple <clears throat> in my youth. And each begins with the disclaimer at the beginning. Every single one begins with the same disclaimer. It reads, as I spin it around, this book is different from other books. You and you alone are in charge of what happens in this story. There are dangers Choices, adventures, and consequences. You must choose, you must use all of your numerous talents and much of your enormous intelligence. That's why I like these books. <laughs> yeah, I got an enormous intelligence. But the wrong decision could end in disaster, even death. But don't despair. At any time, you can go back and make another choice, alter the path of the story, and change its result. See, these books were written from a, a second-person perspective where you assume the role of protagonist or perhaps hero if you make the right choices uh, through a series of decisions at the end of each page. Like, I think the first one ever was about, like, the snowman. And so, like, not the snowman, the abominable snowman, a yeti, right? And uh, so, like, at the bottom of the page, it might say, do you want to pursue the, the yeti or then turn to page 27? Do you want to wait for supplies and, and, and your friends then turn to page 13? And you might bounce around the book different ways, skipping around the pages of the book as you created your own plot determining your character's fate. Most had over 20 endings. This one here has over 27, excuse me, 27 on the dot, different endings. So you could read it more than once, make different choices, and arrive at a different ending, like reading an entirely new story. See, these books tell a story, as most do. But you have a part to play. You control the plot. The original Choose Your Own Adventure books were so successful that some 230 different titles were made. Over 250 million copies were sold in over 40 different languages. These were a big deal. It's the fourth best-selling uh, uh, kids series ever. A special uh, tidbit of trivia you can leave here tonight with the font used on the cover is shouted out by the, uh, the font used for the title of Stranger Things, right? The Stranger Things logo uses the same font. It's like a little nod to uh, the Choose Your Own Adventure books. And no doubt this residual nostalgia, the original popularity is because they were quick, fun, easy reads that could lure in the most reluctant reader. Even if you hated reading, you're like, I could flip through this. It's fun. Make decisions. Some say it kind of uh, prefaced the internet age where we can control so much of what we consume. These books, you could control the plot. And perhaps their popularity, I know for me, was also due to the fact it's, it's a lot easier to make bold, sometimes reckless decisions in a book than it is in your own life, right? <laughs> and screw that up. But uh, R.A. Montgomery, 
His intent when he wrote these books was to teach you two things. First, agency, right? That you have a part to play. You can hear that in the introduction. The second, responsibility. How you play your part has repercussions. And why this focus? We see R.A. Montgomery spent one year in Divinity School, Yale Divinity School, and the chaplain there was named, let me not get his name wrong, William Sloan Coffin. And the year he attended was uh, 1958 to 1959. So in American history, this is right before the sit-ins, the Freedom Riders, the March on Washington, and, and most of the civil rights movement. And I share this because Coffin believed that to be a minister of the gospel meant he must also be an activist and an advocate for social justice. He often preached on courage, calling it the, the virtue that makes all other virtues possible. And he once gave an interview towards the end of his life on PBS where he said, every time people say when they see the innocent suffering, every time they lift their eyes to heaven and say, God, how could you let this happen? It's well to remember that exactly at that moment, God is asking exactly the same question of us. How could you let this happen? So you have to take responsibility. So this man, R.A. Montgomery's chaplain who discipled him for a year, clearly believed that the Bible tells a story and we have a part to play, a responsibility to, to live according to the Bible's values, live the way of Jesus. And this theme, one of courageous agency and the responsibility to make choices that pull from our values is something that R.A. Montgomery would weave into his career as an author, writing these uniquely styled books that absolutely took off. Not just the 230 titles and 250 million that got sold originally, but when the trademark uh, ended in the late 90s, I think, Goosebumps had a run with it. Somebody was saying they read the Goosebumps version, right? Uh, there were Disney fairy tales inserted into this structure. They even did it with Star Wars, which we'll get back to later. <laughs> but they all kept the same choose-your-own-adventure recipe. Read it more than once, make different choices, and you get a different story. So two different people could read the same book and get an entirely different conclusion. And I share all this because, yes, we, we, we took that style and we applied it to Star Wars and Disney fairy tales, but we do similar things with our Bible. Why do I say that? Well, because according to a recent study, only 30% of professing Christians, church-going Christians in America, will read their Bible cover to cover. You might say that's a sad statistic, man. Let's not even get to the statistics of people that won't open their Bible during the week. But at least you're engaging with Scripture, right? But I share that because when you recognize that most Christians who are engaging their Bible are flipping back and forth, bouncing to and from different passages in Scripture, highlighting different verses, and sometimes coming to different conclusions. Like Choose Your Own Adventure books, the Bible has a story and you have a part to play in it. But there's a big, major difference. God is the director, right? The story has been mostly told through his sovereignty, and to jump around is to lose the plot. God has a plan and a purpose, but don't get, don't get it twisted tonight. You have a part to play. You have agency. We have a responsibility to courageously take part in God's story, his invitation to redemption and reconciliation with him and with one another. And how we play our part as the body of Christ, it has repercussions. You could argue convincingly based on statistics in America that we, the church in America, have played our part poorly. Recently, Christian institutions, religious leaders of, of all different denominations and streams of faith, we've shown varying levels of thirst for power. 
self-defensiveness that, that borderlines on unrepentance, and a general lack of courage to speak, not just speak, there's a lot of people speaking, but speak the truth in love, in love. So many folks have departed, discouraged by this witness, deconstructed, whatever, they, whatever path they may go on, but I'd argue one reason the church hasn't played its part well is we've lost the plot. And it, it, you see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day weren't much different than what I just talked about. You look at specifically the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders that kept approaching Jesus, debating Jesus. They had this thirst for power. They had this, this, this hard-headed, unrepentant stance of defensiveness and a general lack of courage. It says that some of them believed, but they didn't want to follow Jesus because of what people might think. You see that in the Gospels with the, the leaders. And it's this very recipe that you could argue got Jesus crucified. And when Jesus confronts them in John 5, he says the following in verse 39. He says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Or as the message version reads on the screen, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you'll think you'll find eternal life there, but you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me, and here I am standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. Jesus is saying, you've missed the forest for the trees. You've lost the plot. He's saying it isn't just enough to read your Bible cover to cover. That's great, but the Pharisees clearly were doing that. The Pharisees had their Bible, right, the Torah, memorized. They were familiar with it. They knew it. <laughs> They weren't unfamiliar, and yet they somehow missed that the Bible tells a story, specifically the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and he was standing right in front of them, and they missed him. And to miss Jesus is to miss the point and lose the plot. And the cure, what we similarly see in Luke 24, two Christ followers who are, are standing right next to the resurrected Jesus Christ after his death and resurrection, and they don't recognize him. Because their plot, he was going to come establish a kingdom. He wasn't going to die. So they just assumed he's still dead. Jesus said to them, you foolish people. I try not to say that from the pulpit, right? You foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning him. For them to understand fully, for them to see and recognize Jesus fully, it took all the scriptures. The, the, for words on a flat sheet of paper to become a full encounter with Jesus, it took all of scripture. But again, it's more than that. It's not enough to just read it first and foremost as some application for your best life, or even as the Pharisees were in pursuit of the gift of scripture, right? Eternal life. But to strip it down to that, that points just to that is to miss that it points first, foremost, and forever to Jesus Christ. Eternal life and salvation are key to the gospel. They're at the heart of the good news. And the story of scripture that extends to today is God wanting to reconcile mankind and restore relationship and community and communion with us into eternity. But to strip the core of the Bible down to its benefits as the Pharisees did, as Jesus again points to their desire to possess eternal life, that can leave you utterly disconnected from the main character in the story, Jesus, who died to have relationship with you. We missed the forest for the trees, taking one point of a greater story, and we missed the plot. No doubt <laughs> this style of teaching is why we see the disciples uh, give speeches, preach, and share in the book of Acts like they did. It was Three weeks ago now, I preached on Stephen. 
and his life of ministry in Acts 6. It's in Acts 7 that we see he gets uh, falsely accused of blaspheming Moses and blaspheming God, and they, they take him in before the religious leaders, and he's been accused of blaspheming God. So I assume, right? I remember the first time I read that, I'm reading through Acts. I assume he's going to state his case, <laughs> defend himself. And what does he do? He gives the longest recorded sermonette, soliloquy, whatever you would call it, speech in the book of Acts, and he starts with the beginning of the Old Testament and works all the way through for what had to have been a long time because it's extended text before he ever gets to the point where he says, all of this was pointing to Jesus, who y'all had crucified. And then I remember just this morning, right? I'm just reading scripture according to my reading plan. It has me in Acts 13. And Paul is at the church of Antioch, and they're like, hey, do you have any encouragement you can share with us? And he gets up, and before he ever gets to, hey, Jesus paid for your sins, you can have forgiveness of sins. For two pages, he shares the history of the Old Testament. He shares the story that this is interwoven in. See, the disciples emphasize how all the Bible, the Bible they had at least, Old Testament, is preparation for Jesus. Then the Gospels we have is a presentation of Jesus, and then every book after that is about our participation in the body of Jesus, the body of Christ. Bottom line, the Bible is all about Jesus. It's a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. I don't know how you want to slice it. The beginning might be Genesis 1 through 2 or Genesis 1 through 11, that where Abraham is called and God's covenant begins. And then the end, we see it not just in the last pages of our Bible, but Matthew 25, right? Final judgment, uh, Revelation 21 and 22, New Jerusalem, and uh, being eternally with the Father. The rest is the middle. And because of the sheer length of the middle and how big our Bibles are, we often skip to shortcuts. Again, if we're being brutally honest, many Christians, we've applied choose your own adventure to the Bible. I'm a, and there's nothing wrong with this. I'm an English major. Okay, I'm a recovering English major. I love, like, it's the reason I love doing this, even though I, for most of my life, hated public speaking, because I love taking a theme, taking a, a subject and, and weaving it through the text, seeing how this theme and imagery is over here and then it's over here and then it's over here again. So I'm a fan of a good reading plan that can take you through one of scripture's many subjects that it addresses. But you think about it, they often have a choose your own adventure feel, right? Like stuck in suffering, turn to this passage over here. Struggling with forgiveness, turn to this verse over here. Want a healthier marriage? Turn to this passage, and then we'll go to this passage. And looking for peace? Turn here. And there's nothing wrong with this practice in and of itself. I love a good Bible reading plan. I love a good study. But as a result, if this is all we ever do, we can bounce around the Bible, make choices about what to read, how often, if at all, to read various parts, and how to piece it all together. The Bible is a, a book that people take many different paths through, sometimes skipping parts altogether, we can find our pathway through the text and we can come to different conclusions just like you can with these books. That's how I hope people can hold to uh, wildly different lifestyles or beliefs, even vote differently and say, well, it's biblical because it, I pulled it from here, right? And there's nothing wrong with that, but <laughs> we got to be careful because it wasn't until 1551 that the Bible even had verses. I'm, I'm thankful that it does, because otherwise it'd be a lot harder to preach. Right? I can point to ideas and passages and verses when talking to people that would be so much harder to find if, if verses weren't there. But I'm also careful, because it's easy to become a Christian who reads Bible verses but never reads the Bible. To live off short quotes and shortcuts and lose the plot. And I'm not saying we all need to start reading the Bible cover to cover this week. I'm not trying to, to put that over your head right now. But I am warning against what I would call a copy and paste Christianity. 
taking bits and pieces from here and there, maybe a sermon clip, maybe something we heard in a sermon here, all well and good, but never consider the greater context and content of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. It answers so much of our questions about Scripture. But the Bible is a story, and we have a part to play, a part to be lived responsibly with courageous agency, and it's not enough to just have our heads in the Bible as the Pharisees did. How we approach the Bible matters. How we look at this text matters. And to approach it in a flawed way, it has a cost. I just want to look briefly at three tonight that are so common. The first is the one we see right in Scripture with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. We read it as a rule book. Now look, like I said earlier, uh, before we were anointing people with oil, I just got through Leviticus. So there are a lot of rules in the Old Testament. <laughs> there are a lot of commandments. And when you start reading through the Old Testament, you might begin to think, man, this, this book has a lot of rules. There's over 600 in the Old Testament alone. And this absolutely will leave an impression on you. And it can seem that the Bible is about what you do, what you shouldn't do, what you're doing wrong, how you can do it better, right? It's the perspective that the religious leaders and Pharisees largely fell into. It makes the Bible primarily about us, what we do, what we don't do, and how we do it. But it, it makes us, as we see with the religious leaders of Jesus' day and some believers you might know, don't look at them right now, it can make you insufferable and intolerable. Why? Because there's this unique blend of self-righteousness, but then also shame. Because if we're being honest, right, it, it sounds all well and good to start, but to read the Bible as a how-to manual or, or as a rule book, it leads to burnout because there is no how-to outside of embracing the person of Jesus Christ. We can't. <laughs> he says in the scripture, self-help is no help at all. It's in the message version in Mark 8, verses 34 and 35. He's teaching his disciples when he tells them, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Follow me and I'll show you how self-help is no help at all. He's saying, follow me. But you got to let go of the driver's wheel. <laughs> You're riding shotgun. This isn't choose your own adventure. I'm the driver. I'm the director. Psalm 119 verse 105 famously speaks to God's divine direction in a verse that many of you might have heard before. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know, in life, I, I want to see more than just where I'm stepping. I want to see around the corner. I want to see five years down the road. Right? I want to see how this is all going to end. But it says right here, you're a lamp unto my feet. So often God just lights up what's right in front of us. We want, the, we want the blueprint, he gives us a game plan. We want the blueprint, he gives us a script for today. Kind of like Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread. It's like, Jesus, I want the Costco size. I want the Sam's Club portion so I know I'm good, right? But he's just helping us through today. And so often he gives us the values, the, the, the story that helps us with today. We ask questions like, man, if God's will and his plan for my life is so important, why does it seem so hard to find? Why does it feel like I'm in the dark? And it's often because we're looking for the wrong thing. So often we're looking how to insert the Bible into the story we're living as like a 10-step plan to purpose or again, a how-to manual or maybe directions rather than find our place in its story. But David, right, the author of Psalm 119 certainly found his place in God's story. It says in the book of Acts that he fulfilled the purposes of God in his lifetime. I mean, who doesn't want that testimony? I want people to say that about me when I've passed, that he fulfilled the purposes of God, the plot that God had for his life in his lifetime. And I believe this is because of Psalm 119 and the way David speaks of Scripture and specifically God's law. 
Back in the Old Testament, in Psalm 119, David says in verse 97, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and, or excuse me, all day long. What was he meditating on? Not like pretty passages like Romans 8 or uh, the pretty passages of the Gospels or Psalm 23. Like he would write that himself, but he was meditating on it. Again, you look at what the Bible he had, it was actual law. We raise our eyebrows like, yeah, right. I'm not meditating on Leviticus uh, day and night. Nobody finds joy or falls in love with Leviticus. But David didn't read scripture as a rule book. He fell in love with God because he saw the law. It paints a portrait of who God is. It's not about our self-help. It's about his holiness, who he is, the way he thinks, the way God operates, his values that we're supposed to fall in love with till we adopt them. David reads scripture correctly as introducing us to the main character in our story, God. The Bible doesn't introduce us to a a 10-step plan for holiness as much as it introduces us first and foremost to Jesus Christ. And importantly, it invites us into relationship with him. See, again, reading the Bible as a rule book or a how-to manual, it'll just lead to burnout because there is no how-to until we give our lives to Jesus Christ. And David sounds the opposite of of burnt out. He sounds the opposite of insufferable. In Psalm 119, he says, I run on the path of your commands. Because where the Pharisees had developed a relationship with Scripture, David developed a relationship with the one who spoke it into existence. No doubt that's why he went on to write some of it himself. In Psalm 119, he uses the pronoun you 41 times. He uses I over 100 times. He's not talking about me and the law. He's talking about a relationship he has with God. This use of personal pronoun speaks to a personal relationship. You see, the cost of reading the Bible like a rule book is you miss out on the relationship. Not reading the Bible as a story can have you missing the main character when he's standing right in front of you. And when you lose connection to the main character in the story, you, use your, you lose your place in the plot. But David, he fulfilled the purpose of God in his lifetime. He didn't choose his own adventure. He ran on the path of God's commands with courageous agency. And one of God's, or excuse me, David's gifts that we get is not just his story in the Old Testament, the books of Samuel and the books of Kings. No, again, he wrote the Psalms. This is one of his contributions to the Bible. And what's notable about the Psalms, depending on how you measure it, one-third to two-thirds of the Psalms are laments, right? Crying out to God when things aren't making sense, when he's in the midst of suffering, calling out to God. There's Psalms of imprecation, where it's like calling down curses on his enemies and their families, and you're like, okay. And it's especially jarring when you, when you just look at this book, you look at the Bible as a collection of promises. That's the second way we often look at the Bible. Just, just daily morsels, bits and pieces of God's blessings, his grace, and his promises. Because we like for our time in the Bible to give us good vibes, right? I mean, that's natural. I don't knock anybody for that, right? We want our time after morning devotions uh, to, to feel like the beginning of the Lego movie after this morning coffee. Like, everything is awesome, right? This is great. Life is awesome. And there's, again, nothing wrong with this. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit in every season, right? God's promises, his blessings, they're permanent and eternal in every season. But the thing is, when you only embrace the sunny passages of Scripture, when life gets dark, you get shook, right? You hit a wall. God feels distant. It all feels wrong as if dark reflections dishonor God or frustrated prayers betray our faith. But for all the promised blessings in the Bible, there sure is a whole lot of of mess, 
a whole lot of stuff on suffering. Even Jesus, you want a promise, he says in John 16, you're going to have trouble. <laughs> That's a promise. But he says, take heart for I've overcome the world. See, some will point to suffering as like problematic for the believer. How can you believe in God when there's all this suffering? But for all that my wife and I have walked through, like our family have walked through, the Bible, I don't run from it, I run to it. Because Christianity isn't the only, uh, a Christian isn't the only person that has to find a reason for suffering. The unbeliever carries the same weight. And you know, so many religions often make it the goal to escape reality to escape the reality of suffering, Christianity tackles making sense of it. We're in the messy middle of an eternally significant and meaningful story. The Bible isn't just a bunch of, uh, of proverbs and, and fables and fairy tales. No, it, it says something concrete and real has happened that affects the reality we live in today. There's a story and we have a part to play. But naturally, and again, no knock on this, we don't, we don't run to the heavy stuff, the hard stuff. But we also can't choose our way, our own adventure around the Bible, bounce around the promises, the peaceful passages, the grace, and the blessings, because it shapes a fragile theology. Like where the prosperity theology promises us all the things, this theology that we build promises all the feels. <laughs> we get all the good feels. We cherry pick the tasty verses and the promises and the blessings, but man cannot live on cherries alone either. <laughs> Without context and, and, and verses without uh, the rest of God's truth, it can't become our daily bread. It's like if there's seven food groups in Scripture and we're only eating one of them, you're going to end up emotionally unhealthy and spiritually undeveloped. What you miss out on is the, the truth of 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, where Paul's writing Timothy. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. To not give yourself to all of Scripture is to be ill-equipped or less equipped than you could be for the work God is calling you to. But we like the reassurance without the rebuke, right? We like the, the confirmation without the correction. We like the transformation without the training. We want to we get fit without going to the gym, basically, but spiritually. Where the cost of reading the Bible as a rule book is to miss relationship with the main character. To read the Bible as a collection of promises and blessings alone and not wrestle with Aspects of scripture like the commands to live holy and the fact I struggle with that because I've got a sin nature is to forsake our character development. It's not that we don't have a role as a character in God's story. We just forsake it or play it poorly when we refuse character development. All these things in this verse that shape our character make us look more like Christ. We play our part poorly and we lose our place in the plot. And unlike David, whose life literally filled the pages of scripture, ours can look more like a a blot of ink. And I share that idea because the, the third way we often look at scripture is like the Rorschach test, right? Where the, there's a, a splash of ink on a page. It doesn't even matter what the ink looks like. What matters is what you see in it and what it says about your emotions, your personality, your mental health, your emotional health, all these things. I'll never forget the author Ellen Goodman once said, I have known dozens of people who use the Bible like a Rorschach test rather than a religious text. They read more into the ink than they read out of it. And I've read, I've read that quote here before, but I share it because in a recent survey, six in 10 Americans agree that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. And you might say, that's people off the street. That's not surprising. Well, 32%, basically one in three people in the church believe the same thing. 
that, that religious belief, it's a matter of opinion, not, not any real truth. And I believe this is just an impact of living in a culture where it's me truth, my truth, your truth, their truth, our truth, this truth, that truth. And look, the sentiment behind saying that is honestly beautiful because it's saying your life is invaluable. Your experience matters. The, the way your experience informs your voice and perspective, it, it, it matters. You matter. But with all your experiences, it still doesn't change God's truth. Truth doesn't change. But it's because of this, this my truth influence that so many people feel no need to dig deep into God's word to see if their life lines up with it. Because if, if I've got peace about it, or I don't think a loving God would make me do that, carries more weight than this text. Reading the Bible like a, a Rorschach test is, is less an opportunity for revelation or transformation as it is for narcissism. Like the, the water reflected narcissist and he got so obsessed with it that he drowned. We can begin to see ourselves in scripture, begin to put mirrors in the sky to Jesus looks like us, God thinks like us. It's what Dr. Eric Mason coined, narcissus, pulling from the word narcissist, narcissism and exegesis. Exegesis is the act of extracting biblical meaning of the text from the text. He says, narcissus puts us at the center of the text, text, making it about us instead of Jesus. And we see the fruit of this all the time, of losing the plot. When we make it about us, the Bible can get mixed up with the prosperity gospel, right? the, the Hebrew Israelites movement, Christian nationalism, white supremacy, all kinds of movements. Because we attempt to weave the Bible into our story rather than recognizing that we're, we're a thread in a much greater story. But just, being called a thread doesn't feel like very affirming. Let me make it clear tonight, that doesn't mean we're insignificant. We should cling to the lessons R.A. Montgomery was trying to teach of agency and responsibility because the Bible tells a story and we have a part to play. And as I mentioned before, when the, the choose your own adventure trademark expired, some, something like the late 90s, uh, all these different uh, subject matters adopted its style, even Star Wars. I think the Empire Strikes Back one was released in 1998. But I've shared this before. But when The Force Awakens came out in 2015, it, it, it signified the reopening of a story that people have watched again and again and again for three generations. And for that reason, numerous actors and actresses uh, all but volunteered to play cameo, low-key, behind-the-scenes roles. Uh, chief among them was Daniel Craig, right, who just finished his run as James Bond, right? Pretty prominent role in our culture, the James Bond. All the arguments about who should play it after him, like people care about James Bond. So he's the face of James Bond in 2015. He'd starred in well over 40 movies, and yet Star Wars, a story that began, began some 40 years ago, he asked to play, and I quote, some sort of secret cameo role, right? So, so he puts on a helmet and a white hard shell stormtrooper costume, and played a role that was 100% unrecognizable and nobody would have known about unless somebody talked about it. I guess they probably noticed his name in the credits and were like, wait, excuse me? <laughs> Where? Why? The most likely explanation for why Craig and others all but volunteered for such roles is that Star Wars is such a huge story in film history that these actors happily stepped into a role, even if it was one where nobody even knew it was them. The underlying perspective, it's about the story, not being the star, right? It's about the bigger story, not me. 
Daniel Craig's role, it went viral, right? Became like popular trivia. People marveled at it because we're a culture (laughs) that pushes the individual towards their own story, their own platform. As a result, the average person will take roughly 25,000 selfies in their lifetime. Yet in stark contrast to this, this famous actor hid his face and likeness under a helmet for this role, taking on total anonymity. Now, there's nothing wrong with the practice of taking a selfie. Don't walk out of here with shame about that, okay? But we have to match our obsession with the sh- obsession with the selfie, obsession with the selfie, with an appreciation for the story. Because rich fulfillment in your life is going to be most often found in participating in larger causes, larger movements, bigger stories than, than to be the star of a smaller one. No matter who gets the credit. Jesus called John the Baptist a star. He said he's, he's the greatest. Like of, of, of people that have been born and walked the earth, Jesus says John the Baptist was the greatest. He says it right there in the Gospels. But you know, John the Baptist says in Matthew 3.11, he says, Jesus is the main character in this drama. This is the message version. It says, compared to him, I'm a mere stagehand. Jesus is center stage. <laughs> God is directing. I'm like over here in a supporting role. Right? Jesus is at the center. And you may say, okay, what does that look like for me? Right, I got to go home and, and go live my life. What does this mean for me? Like enough Star Wars. How does this apply to me? Well, for one, We aren't tied to something that happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But the gospel ties us to what is happening right now, even on this globe far away, right? When we reduce the gospel to its benefits, to just salvation, just eternal life, to what we get out of it as an individual, and we make our personal benefit the whole story, we can not only find ourselves out of relationship with Jesus, but out of relationship again with the body of Christ, disconnected from the church. The story of Scripture, the narrative of Scripture shows us God's plan for redemption and salvation is community-shaped. Props to Vanessa for preaching on community last week. It takes place in and through covenant community. First, the Israelites, then the church. And you know, our idea of the church can become so small. (laughs) Like it's it's walls and and us in here and a a 90-minute service on the weekend. But it's so much bigger than city life. It's so much bigger than the American church that I'm sharing these stats about. You know, here's a visual. They'll throw that up. It's church in Rwanda on the top left. You know, neighbors in Rwanda were killing themselves in in 94. And now they worship together through these uh, reconciliation services and and religious services. You got a a church in Honduras. You got worship in Malawi, where that day the pastor had preached from Romans 1.8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. And then as reports come, come in from across the world in Ukraine, that's an image of believers praying and worshiping together as one. These pictures hopefully are a striking reminder for you as they are for me that we're a part of something that's bigger, more meaningful, more lasting than what we see in front of us every day, than what we even see here tonight. Our story is tied to theirs eternally. The end of our stories in eternity will be spent, right, in the image found in Revelation 7. Where John says, after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne, worshiping. So if I got to have the worship team come up, I want to end tonight as scripture ends in worship. But as much as the places in these images may seem like a galaxy far, far away, again, our future and our story is tied to theirs, just as all of our stories are tied to the story of the Bible. 
We're part of something much bigger than me, much bigger than us, much bigger than this region, much bigger than our moment in history. You know, I've already seen people connecting the, the war in Ukraine to uh, events in Revelation, right? Well, that's this part of Revelation. And it just, there's nothing wrong with that, but it does speak to our impulse to fit the Bible into our story. Rather than let the Bible place Jesus at the center and we find our place in it. Revelation 19.10 says the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness, not to what's going on in our world, but to Jesus. It also speaks to the impulse that we all have to be the planning party for Christ's return. We want to know when, so we can throw it on the calendar and, and set up the party. But God calls us to be a part of the welcoming party. Specifically, wel- welcoming other people in to the good news of the gospel, restoration, reconciliation with him and with others. Making Jesus easy to find because he's at the center, because he's the main character. You're not going to miss him when he's standing next to you because we're all about Jesus and making him easy to find. And again, in a couple weeks, Fred's going to kick off this sermon series, The Story, and dive so much deeper into what I'm talking about tonight. But consider this an appetizer. And again, this idea that when you approach the Bible as a story, you realize you have a part to play. And while the Bible isn't choose your own adventure, we should take notes from the lessons he was trying to teach that you have agency, you have responsibility, and you have to act courageously. And again, we as a church are far too often lacking courageous agency. I'm convinced it's because we forget that this book has an end. Right again, Matthew 25, Revelation 21 and 22, and it's not here yet. Right, we still have work to do. To pray the Our Father, but not just do that, walk out the Our Father, that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have a part to play in in the plot of this book, God reconciling himself, not just with us, but our neighbors and the whole world. And you know, that can be a little intimidating. When you think about the Great Commission, we're called to reach the world. That's a big bite to chew. We become paralyzed and we don't ever take the first step. Like we don't need people that just go across the world. We need people that go across the street, go across the aisle and share the hope we have. See, the Great Commission isn't as intimidating when you realize, like these pictures show, it's bigger than you. The church is bigger than you. our, Our call is bigger than us. The story is bigger than us. And may we be a church that realize we have a part to play. May we have courageous agency to walk responsibly with the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, right? To love God and to love neighbors. But again, I want to end tonight in worship just as Revelation 7 does in Scripture. But God, I pray tonight. God, I pray that we would pick up our call again. You call us to deny ourselves, take up our cross. We sung about the cross. We sung about the cross we'll carry that one day we'll trade for a crown. But God, may we be a people that recognizes our call to to agency. Yes, you're sovereign. Yes, you sit on the throne, but we're still called to bring your kingdom here. There's peace in heaven. Where there's not peace here, God, I pray we would bring peace. There's perfect justice in heaven. I pray there'd be perfect justice here. Perfect love in heaven. Help us to love one another better. And God, where we've put down our call to agency, to act responsibly, because we put ourselves at the center instead of you. We become the main character instead of you. God, I ask that you would forgive us. God, forgive me for those times where I wake up in the morning and it's, it's about me. 
I pray that you will be at the center, not just of this church as we worship, but at the center of each one of our lives, on the throne of each one of our lives. And God, I pray that when we, when we take that step, give our life to you, we remember what we celebrated in communion, that you're seated at the right hand of God the Father, that you're our champion, we walk in victory, and where the enemy would try to tell us we've been disqualified, we're not gifted enough, we're not whatever enough, to, to walk out the calling you have for us in the church. God, I pray you would cast down that lie of the enemy. God, that you would remind us that your grace covers, but your grace calls. God, you, you cleanse us, but you call us, God, to be ministers, not just here in this room, but in our world. And lastly, where we have put down our part because we put down our Bibles, God, I pray that we would recommit ourselves to finding you, not just finding eternal life like the Pharisees were looking for, finding you in Scripture so we can find you in our hearts and in our lives. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. And we do it in this place. Amen.